2: The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code The Gist.
0: It's Tuesday, October 14, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So I have pondered on this program our societal inability to admit victory, or at least to recognize success. We cannot celebrate things that are good, things that are pretty good, like gas prices. Have you looked lately? Gas is down to an average of $3.16 a gallon. It's fallen by $0.09 this week, according to the AAA Gas Buddy tracks 43,000 gas stations A third of them are selling gas for less than $3 a gallon. And the deals they have on air fresheners. How awesome is this? I don't know. It's not being celebrated. Remember a couple years ago, Obama was up for re-election. Republicans were trying to sting Democrats with high gas prices. Headline, New York Times, February 2012. Rising gas prices give GOP issue to attack Obama. USA Today headline. Boehner, gas prices could cost Obama the White House. Here's Boehner on CNN. The way we help the middle class is we get our economy going again. We develop more American oil and gas so that their gas prices, which have doubled under President Obama, uh, are again reasonable. And here's CNN pundit David Gergen on the political cost of high gas prices. But It also
2: then has very uh, uh, profound political consequences because Americans, for better or worse, do hold their president responsible for high gas prices. And we've seen at least one other case. Jimmy Carter, a president who went down over unrest in the Middle East and very high gas
0: prices. Yeah, well, now gas is down, so high gas prices can have costs, but lower gas prices can have benefits. In reality, there is actually only so much a president can do. It was silly to blame the president for high gas prices. It's kind of silly to give him credit now. Good thing, because no one is giving him credit. By the way, on that CNN show, the one where we heard Gergen, Candy Crowley let off with this statement.
2: It seems to me that when Americans judge the economy, three things stick out, the jobless rate, the price of gasoline
0: and the value of their homes. And in 2012, that spelled tough times for the incumbent president and his party. Now, since then, the case Schiller Home Index, it's risen by about 20 percent. Unemployment's dropped by about 25 percent. As we've documented, the price of gas has fallen by 25 percent. So with all these positive benefits, the three big ways people judge the economy, how is the president doing in his economic approval ratings? Terrible. The Wall Street Journal reports today that whereas Democrats were favored on economic matters by a margin of 18% in 2008, today Republicans get the edge on the economy by a margin of 10%. It is the biggest advantage the Republicans have had in two decades. This, after unemployment and gas prices are down by 25% and home values are up by 20%. I don't get it. Or maybe I do. Maybe things are secretly improving. And maybe when America elects a Republican House and a Republican Senate, that's when we'll finally be encouraged to realize it. Mike's political soapbox doesn't turn to splinters after that. No, no, no. In the spiel, what happens when bluegrass politics collide with Italian folklore? Before that, we'll be working on and practicing our night moves. But first, when it comes to cell phones, rollover describes both unused minutes and the company's posture whenever a prosecutor asks for user information. But now Apple and Google are saying no more. Apple and Google have encrypted smartphones, preventing or at least making it more difficult for law enforcement to access data. The director of the FBI, James Comey, has made his concerns known to the company. He's also making his case publicly. Here he is speaking with 60 Minutes. The notion that uh, we would market devices that would allow someone to place themselves beyond the law uh, troubles me a lot. He also said... As a country, I don't know why we would want to put people beyond the law. That is... Uh, sell cars with trunks that couldn't ever be opened by law enforcement with a court order, or sell an apartment that could never be entered, even by law enforcement? Would you want to live in that neighborhood? Uh, This is a similar concern. U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder last month said something quite similar. He said it's fully possible to permit law enforcement to do its job while still adequately protecting personal privacy. Well, joining me now is Hani Fikori, staff attorney for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Their slogan is Defending Your Rights in the Digital World. Hello, Hani. Hi, Mike. All right, I'll start. I'll start in the attack. What about my rights as a victim? Guy steals my car. Why can't we track the cell phone? Guy makes threats against my family via text. Why can't we look at his cell phone to try to convict him?
1: Well, there's no question that the police can look through that data, and no one is saying that they shouldn't be allowed to look through that data. And what Apple has done here is close off a very kind of small way in, And while that may harm law enforcement, it's going to absolutely secure other people's data so that if your phone does get stolen, somebody else isn't accessing that phone or accessing the data on the phone.
0: I think that uh, one of the reasons why Apple is doing this is not just because they're good corporate citizens, or I might even take the word just out of that sentence. Let's just assume they're profit motivated. There's a desire for this and there's a market for this. And I don't even think it's necessarily for the reason you just talked about, which is worrying about access to... um, you know, hackers. I don't think that it's mostly the pedophile audience. I think it's a discomfort with overall government intrusion. And so I think what might be going on is there's discomfort with, say, warrantless wiretaps and what the perception that the NSA is doing. The solution is this encrypted phone that Apple is offering, but that's not exactly addressing the anxiety, which is the warrantless wiretaps. In fact, if if anyone's going to be victimized by this, it's police departments or potential victims.
1: I would disagree a little bit. I Mm -hmm. think that this does actually address the warrantless wiretapping. I mean, not, not that specific issue, but the broader problem, it yeah. does tackle it on in a small way, which is you know something we've traditionally said, which is it's up to the government, obviously, to stop abusing its powers, and it's up to Congress to pass laws to restrict the government's actions. But it's also on the companies to take steps to safeguard user data and not create a, a backdoor, a mechanism for law enforcement to get itself in. And so I think this is a, a small piece about this larger issue about securing the data on our phones and this wealth of data that is now floating around, you know, in everyone's pocket. You know, we've had policing in this country for hundreds of years. And I'm not saying law enforcement shouldn't be allowed to take advantage of, you know, technological advances. But the reality is that even in the last 20, 30 years, the amount of data and evidence that they have their hands-on is just an enormous windfall for law enforcement. There was no such thing as Facebook 15 years ago. They never would have found a picture of a guy holding you know, the murder weapon or holding the victim's property uh, on uh, on a social media account that anybody can see in the world and that they can go fax in a request and get the data back. This is a net windfall for law enforcement.
0: Well, your colleague, the director of technology projects at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Peter Eckersley, was quoted in the Washington Post as saying something similar, that law enforcement has an enormous range of technological and old-fashioned methods. The reality is that if the FBI wants to investigate someone, they have a spectacular arsenal of weapons. And then the Post went on to, quote, uh, the chief of Chicago detectives laying out a case where using an unencrypted cell phone helped them. So I just wanted to... ...give you the opportunity to say why either this is unrepresentative or the police had other cases. But let me lay it out what uh, this guy Escalante said, that there was a a home invasion. Uh, A victim, 73 years old, died in the hospital. Police got a break during a routine traffic stop. They confiscated a Colt revolver that once belonged to the victim... That led them to a Facebook post made days after the homicide in which a man posted a cell phone selfie with the gun. When police found the smartphone used for that picture, the case broke open. You present them with a picture of themselves taken with the gun, and it's hard to deny it. It played a huge role in this whole thing. So, I mean, that's one case. The entire policy shouldn't be based on one case. But what would you say about that case?
1: There's absolutely nothing in that example that was caused by police getting access to the physical phone itself. They saw the picture on the Facebook profile, which means they could have gone to Facebook and said, can you turn over the information about that phone? Mm -hmm. They got a lucky break because they found the gun that was tied to the victim. None of that evidence came from anything that was sitting on the physical phone itself. You know, I like to think that law enforcement officers are trained to do their jobs well and that they know how to get suspects to talk. They know how to go to Facebook and get records and data that is stored by that company. So I don't see this, again, as being as big of a problem as law enforcement officials claim. It's not surprising to me you're seeing you know, high-ranking public law enforcement officials, you know, unhappy with this, and maybe they want to ch- convince Apple to change its mind. But I think you know, if you talk to frontline officers, they're going to be okay, they're going to be able to do their jobs, and I like to think they have enough pride to think that this isn't going to be the end of the world.
0: Hany Fakurry, staff attorney for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So here's a little bit of the dynamic at my house. Could I have some syrup? What do you say? Please. I need a tissue. You need a tissue, what? I need a tissue, please, a little bit later in the evening. Could we watch 10 more minutes of the Muppet movie? I raise my eyebrows, please. And then by the nighttime, Daddy, tuck me in, please. So I'm raising a next generation to say please. But we, the current generation, we don't have to say please. We just have to make demands. And our demands are invariably met. Without a please, we get what we want on demand, like say this podcast, really everything you could think of, syrup, tissues, Muppets, stamps. Wait, what did I just say? The post office stamps? No, the post office is not on demand when you think about it. You have to deal with their hours and their lines. So I give you stamps.com. The please is implied. Anything you could do at the post office, you could do from your desk with Stamps.com. Like official U.S. postage. You could print that with your own printer right at your desk. Stamps.com doesn't close. What dot com closes? It doesn't close 24-7. Weigh a letter. Weigh a package. Wait, I'm saying way? Yeah. They're going to throw in a free digital scale. And we've got a promo code. The promo code is the gist. Here's the special offer. No risk trial. Plus $110.00. Bonus offer includes that digital scale I mentioned and up to $55 free postage. So we say don't wait, go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist if you please. And thank you. Working on a night moves. Trying to make some fun. So Bob Seger's Night Moves, it's just one of those songs. Strangely, it's one of those songs that Wikipedia nails kind of poetically. I mean, listen to this. Night Moves is a mid-tempo number that starts quietly with acoustic guitar. Bass, guitar, and drums are introduced as the song's setting is described. 1962, cornfields, 60 Chevy. I mean, that's how Wikipedia phrases it, right? No, just, just the list. An intense summertime teenage affair is described, knowingly more sexual than romantic. You don't get knowingly, that adverb, in Wikipedia that often. Anyway, with short instrumental lines breaking the evocative imagery... Sometimes in mid-sentence, piano, female backing vocals, electric guitar, and organ are added. As the song's emotional nostalgia builds momentum, then suddenly it stops. As the narrative flashes forward to some point in the future, where he hums a song from 1962. To a quiet, acoustic guitar, the narrator, awakened by a clap of thunder and unable to fall back asleep, ponders a different sense of the title phrase. Then the rest of the instruments fall back in for an extended coda vamp of the chorus. That was nice. Maybe not as nice as Night Moves, but just saying that in concert would be a pretty good song. There is a book about Night Moves. What this book is, is a collection of all the comments under the Night Moves video on YouTube. Stephanie Barber has written, compiled something. We're going to think of what verb it is to describe what she's done with this book. Hello, Stephanie.
2: Hello. What
0: verb should I use?
2: Um, yeah, I think compiled,
0: grabbed, kind of conceptualized, captured. because what you did is, but I didn't do the conceptualizing. You didn't. You didn't provide any of the content. No. You bound the book. I mean, yeah, not physically, I literally. Didn't, but the, yeah, the publisher did. What you said was, this can be a book. Yeah. And that's something of an artistic achievement to recognize that this is something other than just a bunch of people talking about night moves. That this is something to consider, beyond the comment section of YouTube.
2: Certainly an artistic... I mean, the book is an art offering. It falls in line with a lot of conceptual books and art projects. You know, it pretty much toes the line of, you know, clearly hewn conceptual paths of found... Work and appropriation or, you know, just recontextualizing something that's already existing.
0: Exactly. How'd you come to the YouTube comments section for Night Moves in the first place?
2: I was listening to the song in the in my car. So I have an old car and I don't have a... 60 Chevy? No. 92 Toyota (laughs) Corolla. That doesn't go well with the lyrics. (laughs) I know. (laughs) You know, it doesn't have a CD player or tape or whatever else. People have, uh, so I have
0: radio and only like two stations and yeah. one is classic rock. And, and by law, Night Moves is always playing on one of those stations. It's always
2: playing <laughs> anyway, much. yeah. Layla
0: by Derek and the Dominoes and Night Moves. Those, those yeah. The two. yeah,
2: yeah, which is good, <laughs> you know, although I don't need to hear that Derek and the Dominoes song. But anyway, yeah, I was listening to it and then I got home and I was like, you know, I never really, that music, so much of classic rock
0: mm-hmm.
2: is just uh, you know, the the noise of America. You know, yeah. it's the supermarket. It's the gas station. It's your car when you don't have radio. It's yeah. elevators. Yeah. And it's part of our fabric, but I don't think yeah. I ever really considered what is Bob Seeger really doing? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was reading, I was listening to the song and then I was reading the comments and I was just blown away. Because you know? what
0: people were using <sighs> the comment amazing. section to do was a few things, but primarily maybe the thing that would jump out at you is, Talk about how they lost their virginity. That was a big thing.
2: Well, I think what's really fascinating for me, as far as like it being a successful piece of art, is that it really equally entwines nostalgia and like contemplation of mortality. That is a huge part of it. Sex, mm-hmm. like icky sex and also sexy sex. Yeah. You know, like there are some things yeah. that are truly hot and there are some things that are just horrible. Like you're yeah. like, humans, don't be gross. Yeah. Also, contemplation of art. There's a lot of people really dialoguing about. Is this good? Is it not good? What makes it good? And I think it's just like a perfect storm for a piece of work. And just having like I'm really interested in like the sort of, you know, Plato's idea that democracy was like going to be a really horrible idea Mm because the people shouldn't be leading. You know, like the people are really horrible. This is like this very democratized vision of what what is hot, what is death.
0: Yeah. Yeah what is art? That's yeah. so
2: heavy. Sex, death, and art.
0: <laughs> right. And it's also got all these elements of discourse in it. Like, th- at one point, a flame war erupts between someone who... The Australian. Who... Yeah. Well, there's someone who, like doesn't like the song enough and then everyone gets on that person and then a brief bubbling up dialogue about rap and then we all agree, okay, it was the gangster rap that ruined rap and then it comes (laughs) back to like someone else talking about their virginity and then the Australian. Tell us about the Australian. Yeah.
2: Well, right. The Australian (laughs) comes in that part. Those kind of like firestorms are interesting just in a purely structural way, you Mm -hmm. know, because it's all kind of like plain and then there are these little peaks of just crazy argument that feel like they're just thrown onto the canvas to be a little change in flavor, and then they go away. So that if we were going to, like, decide to make a book this perfect, we would be like, well, we need a bit of, like, humorous drama right here. And everybody got together and decided, like, yeah, that is where we need to have this fight.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think it's perfect. Well, you know, one of the things I like to do is if I'm in the Broadway area around ten when a show is out I like to go and intermingle with the crowds especially if it's a show I've seen Uh, and just hear the conversations about the show and not just uh, to evaluate any specific thing that people were saying but just to get the sense of one person saying yeah I really thought the lead was and then he trails off and then another person saying the chair was uncomfortable right and they're really some are talking about the show some are talking about some meta experience and that's what this is yeah it's such a beautiful pastiche yeah Yeah. so it works as language poetry and and if an artist were to do Or if, you know, a screenwriter were to do a pastiche, we have a lot of movies that start with this. You know, they're all heightened. They're all a little phony. We only get the non-boring parts. And the Mm, kind of boring parts make the other parts. The boring parts
2: in this book, exactly. Yeah, the banality is such a huge part of it. You know, and then those fights are like a little bit of sorbet, you know, like a goopy French meal. Like we're just (laughs) in this cream, white cream, and all of a sudden there's a fight. Or something that's completely... Nonsensical, like Thai food or. Yeah, someone just writes Uncle that in touchy all caps. Feely thai basement. Food.
0: Yes. So the first comment is to Julie, wherever you are, oh. I still, cap still, remember the first time I saw you in psychology class, 10th grade, spring of 76. In it's quotes. in quotes. <laughs> you made night moves for me, 77 to 78. I will carry those memories in my heart forever and only stop with the last beat of my heart. Dot, 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 dot. You know, that if if it started it's a off great with great opening. Yes. And if it just started off with why is Bob Seeger so awesome or no, you know it it some other it wouldn't. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. You like the song unironically, as do I. But I also like the song ironically yeah, too. Me yeah. too. Right, exactly. exactly. I know, well I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. But if the song were something actually really cool, I don't know, sexual healing or something mm-hmm. even a little more underground, would this exercise be as effective?
2: That song yeah. is so strange he was relatively young yeah. and he's talking about dying yeah. and thinking back on his like first sex so it's like this it's really pretty serious um uh... The like faux or pre-nostalgia yes you know and and so and that's also what those youtube comments feel like they're already even though i don't even like interact that much with youtube internet world but it already feels dated in this pre-nostalgic it's all about the future like oh we have a mass forum for everybody to talk about art and sex and you know love yeah but it already has it's it's so dated, yeah, like it's, literally
0: it's, dated. Right. It's the people who say things aren't like that anymore. But a lot of these people are saying pretty soon things won't be like yeah. this anymore. It's this appetite for a nostalgia that hasn't right. even happened. That's exactly. not even honestly come by. And that's by. what the
2: song is. I woke last night to the sound of thunder. How far off I sat and wondered. Started humming a song from 1962. And a funny how the night moves When you just don't seem to have as much to lose Strange how the night moves
0: With autumn closing in Stephanie Barber is the author, nah, compiler of Night Moves, a small little interesting book that collects all the discussion under the Night Moves video from YouTube. And she's also out with a new film called Daredevils. It's feature length, it's uh, narrative, it's about a writer. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you. And now the spiel, hoping to become a real boy. So the ALCS was rained out last night, opening up my evening for an even greater showdown of speed versus power. It's the Kentucky Senate race. Mitch McConnell debating challenger Allison Lundergan-Grimes. Grimes, the Democrat, has been cagey on who she voted for in 2008 and 2012. Maybe it was Barack Obama. Nope. She said before, and when asked again last night, she again turned taciturn. Why are you reluctant to give
1: an answer on whether or not you voted for President Obama? Bill, there's no reluctancy. This is a matter of principle. Our Constitution uh, (laughs) grants uh,
2: here
0: in Kentucky uh, the constitutional right for privacy at the ballot box for a secret ballot. Principle. Principle. The principle being admitting that you voted for an extremely unpopular president might hurt you. That's the principle. No, that wasn't the principle. It was ballot secrecy and somehow the troops. I've
1: worked very closely, especially with the members of our military, to ensure the privacy at the ballot box, those that lay their life on that line.
0: Okay, just to be incredibly pedantic, no one is compelling her to say who she voted for. She doesn't have to tell. It's just like if you asked her, have you ever asphyxiated a baby koala? She can't be compelled to deny that she once choked to death with her bare hands, a cute baby koala. But if she refuses to answer, Kentucky voters can hold that against her. Later, Grimes gave McConnell props for his mountain of riches.
1: I don't fault Senator McConnell for becoming a multimillionaire on the backs of hardworking Kentuckians. That's what America's about.
0: The American dream would now like to apologize to the backs of hardworking Kentuckians. Didn't know that your backs were such a fundamental launch pad for fiscal success. McConnell, by the way, strongly objected. She's been
1: given four Pinocchios for that as well.
0: Four Pinocchios. That's a surfeit of Pinocchios, no? She knows it's wrong. She's been given four Pinocchios repeatedly. I like the Pinocchio system. The Washington Post awards Pinocchios based on veracity in political campaigns. The downside is that you have a Senate majority leader virtually quoting the accounting firm of Grim Grim and Goose. And it wasn't the only claim to which McConnell cried Jiminy Crickets. The outrageous issue that somehow my wife and I profited from Eddie Cole, activist that was given a four. Pinocchios by the Washington Post is the ultimate deception. It's pretty hard to get four Pinocchios. The only one I can think of who got four Pinocchios other than Secretary Grimes is the president. Four Pinocchios certainly represents a statistically significant accumulation of Pinocchios. The heretofore wanton Pinocchioism we have seen in this campaign, it saddens me. We've become Pinocchio-saturated, laden with a rampant Pinocchiosity. Bill it's troubling. Now, I just want to say that Mitch McConnell actually did turn into something of a bluegrass Geppetto in that he invented a Pinocchio. Yes, one of those ads got four Pinocchios, but the other one only got three Pinocchios, so he was the creator of a Pinocchio. But overall, this campaign has had more Pinocchios than when Magic Kingdom experienced the scheduling foul-up. The Washington Post has checked eight claims or ads or ads taken out by groups on behalf of the candidates. This doesn't even include McConnell's claim in last night's debate that the Kentucky version of the Affordable Health Care Act is only a website. Even so, With the exception of the very first ad of the campaign, which accurately touted Mitch McConnell's work on behalf of nuclear power plant workers, every other ad has gotten three or four Pinocchios. And while I will defend every Kentuckian's constitutional right to accumulate Pinocchios, I do have to say, we seem to have reached peak Pinocchioism. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is producer of Slate Podcast. She sports brown hair. The cascades past the shoulders, pretty much mid-back, earning her two Rapunzel's. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, has been known to dance around the fire, revealing his secret name and song, earning him three Rumpelstiltskens, but zero Rapunzel's if you know him. So I will now forego all the places you could listen to us or interact with us by asking you to listen and then to act. There are three more days left in the Just Pledge drive after today please pledge that you will turn someone else onto the gist. Then act by physically signing them up. Grab their phone, grab their iPad, grab their device. That did not sound good. But say, here, I'm going to sign you up to the gist. What's your password? Dog's name, 8675309? Not very secure, Bob. Anyway, I'm giving you the gist. And we do the pledge drive because our great asset isn't our reach. It's not our budget. It's not like just by flipping a switch I'm on 600 public radio stations like some guys who stopped talking about cars three years ago. I'm not doing cameos and all the primetime CBS dramas like the announcers on CBS Thursday football. Our asset is passion. You like us, you want us to keep going, and I promise you we will, but only if you help us. In public media they have this phrase, a sustaining membership. Well, signing up a friend or a loved one or a Tommy Toon fan club treasurer, that's the way to do it. And if you tweet or Facebook us with a good story of who you signed up, you could be this Friday's Lopstar. So the Antenne Twig approaches. Act now. And I will say that I log in at half a Rapunzel, but I have been known to offer up my older siblings for consumption, earning me three Billy Goats Gruff. I enjoy gourd-based transportation, which means I get four Cinderella's, And I like a steaming hot bowl of porridge, followed by a nice hard bed, earning me a big old Papa Bear. It was good to get off my chest. Thanks for listening.
1: Even Metcalf, and this week on the Slate Culture Gap Fest, we talk about the new podcast from the producers of *This American Life*. It's called *Serial*, and for us, it raised issues about long-form nonfiction and truth-telling. Look for us in the Slate Store on iTunes or at slate.com/podcasts.